It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. We all live inside of a simulation created by our brains. As such, your brain is, without a doubt, the most important thing in your life. Everything in your life is downstream of your brain. When your brain is functioning well, you're free to grow and chase your dreams. But if something goes wrong in your brain, everything in your life suffers. That's why I am really excited about today's guest, Nolan Williams. Nolan is at the forefront of brain research, specifically your brain, as it relates to anxiety and depression. In today's episode, we explore how things can go wrong for any of us, what to do when there's a glitch in our personal matrix, and some of the cutting-edge treatments like electromagnetic stimulation and psychedelics that Nolan has been exploring in his laboratory. The epitaph I want on my tombstone is that you're having a biological experience. If you want to optimize your life, you must understand yourself as a biological creature. And today, we're deep diving into the complex world of mental health, bridging the gap between brain science, life experiences, innovative treatments, and the complex mechanisms of the brain. I think you're going to love it. And if you do, please be sure to rate and review the show so that we can reach even more people. Now, without further ado, I'm Tom Bilyeu, and I bring you Nolan Williams. We basically live in a simulation that's created by our biology. One of the most troubling glitches in that matrix is depression. You're an intersection of something that I think is really important with transcranial magnetic stimulation and psychedelics. What's happening? What causes depression? If you take somebody and you stress them in the scanner and you cause them to have this, what they call social defeat stress, right? Where you make them feel like they, you know, have this inability to control, you know, the external world, this inability to, this kind of sense or feeling of kind of social defeat in front of others, that sort of thing, then um, a certain brain region will go offline. What brain region? It's is called that? the uh, left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. So that's the region that's involved in control and perceptions of control. Control or perceptions of control? So I'd say perceptions those are pretty of dirty. control. Yeah, perceptions of control. That brain region goes offline, and you know the idea is that if you accumulate enough of that, you're sending a signal into the system that basically trains a system like a memory to keep that system offline. How are you knocking that out in the first place? Is that where we're using transcranial magnetic stimulation? No. So it's um, it's essentially this idea that you know, external stimuli, you know, feelings of loss of control, feelings, you know, social humiliation, whatever it is. So you humiliate them while they're in the machine? Uh, I don't, I don't. But there have been studies that uh, that folks have done that, right? They do social defeat stressors and different, through different tasks or watching videos, you can make, you can induce sadness in normal, healthy controls. So I could put you in the scanner and make you 
experience sadness by playing like some of the, you know, most sadness inducing, you know, movies um, that, that people have ever seen. So you can, there are experimental ways of manipulating emotions, even normal healthy controls. You Mm -hmm. can do it in people with illness and you can accentuate it, right? You can make folks um, experience more symptoms, even than their baseline, say depressive symptoms. And those are ways of moving this network around and then understanding what it is. So we've been doing that for a long time, you know, since the mid nineties, one of my, my mentor that developed the original transcranial magnetic stimulation approach was doing experiments in, uh, at the um, national Institute of mental health in the mid nineties. And they were doing these sorts of emotional manipulation, sadness, induction sorts of manipulations. And so you can take somebody who's not sad, you can make them sad. And then another brain region comes online that's called the subgenual anterior cingulate. So the left dorsolateral is kind of like right at the edge of your eyebrow, go all the way up to the, you know, the natural hairline. And that's about where that is. The subgenual anterior cingulate is more in the kind of midline of the brain. It's under the corpus callosum. So it kind of sits, um, you know, more kind of behind my two fingers here. And that region will come online during sadness and, you know, in depressed individuals kind of stay online. Mm. And so, you know, the, the dynamic between those two brain regions normally is, and it's, this is a simplification. This is, there are more regions that are involved, but you know, the core of it is the left dorsolateral clamps down on the subgenual anterior cingulate in the case of mood regulation. There are other parts of the dorsolateral that'll clamp down on the, and other parts of the cingulate for cognitive control, like pure cognitive control. But essentially those two brain networks, those two brain regions within, you know, associated brain networks are involved in this, this dynamic of control. And if your external environment is such that it essentially trains through kind of a, essentially a memory process, these systems to be pathologically in the case of dorsolateral turned down in the case of the subgenual turned up, then it makes um, the individual much more likely to have a depressive episode and much more likely to stay in a depressive episode. And so we know from many different, you know, kind of epidemiological studies that folks with uh, early life trauma, so they've had, you know, abuse, you know, physical abuse, sexual, emotional abuse as a kid, they're much more likely to you know, experience depression and have harder to treat depression, what we call treatment resistant depression, right? And so it's like those early life experiences wire in a certain risk within this network. The good thing to, to kind of get to our, you know, your question earlier in our, our research is that we're able to, with stimulation, reverse that dynamic. And we're able to do it not just with depression, but we can actually move around perceived control phenomenon and other parts of the dorsolateral cingulate combination. So we've been able to, there's a paper coming out soon where we were able to move around trade hypnotizability and make people more likely to suggestion. When you say move around, you're saying increase by altering what brain regions are online or offline or active or inactive. 
That's so interesting. Okay. So I, I really try to convey to people a very simple notion. You are having a biological experience. I've said a thousand times, if there's going to be an epitaph on my grave, uh, I would want it to be that just a reminder to people that ultimately you exist inside of this simulation is a cool way to say it, but your, your brain one light never touches your brain. And even if it did, the portion of the electromagnetic spectrum that we perceive is like one millionth of what is actually there. So the the thing that we think of as everything is this tiny, 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 tiny fraction of what's actually there. And so in confusing your perception for reality, you don't realize how much your brain is basically communicating to you to say, oh, this thing is bad or this thing is good. It's not necessarily objectively bad or good. And for me, the, the big breakthrough in my life came when I realized, oh, wow, all everything that I'm worried about not being able to achieve in my life is comes down to brain plasticity. Can I get better? Yes or no. If I can yep. get better, then it's just about applying as much energy as I can. Do we yep. have limits? Of course. And are all of our limits different? Yes. Yep. But at least focusing on that. And so getting into the brain science of how this actually worked ended up unlocking literally the rest of my life. So when I try to explain to people, I didn't start rich, successful, didn't have entrepreneur parents, nothing. I I started behind the eight ball as far as I'm concerned. Not many people had it worse, but I was not primed for the kind of success that I ended up having. And when I look at why, it really does trace back to the moment I decided to understand how the brain worked. And that allowed me to start pulling whatever levers I could, which, you know, 25 years ago, when I really started thinking about this, there weren't as many levers to pull on. But now as we start looking at things like this, it gets pretty interesting. So one thing that I try to communicate to people is you become what you repeat. Yep. Now I have a thesis on this that you as somebody who knows this far better than I want, wherever I go wrong, let me know. Your brain is just a caloric hog. It is just gobbling yep. up resources. Yep. From an evolutionary standpoint, resources in the form of calories were very hard to come by. So your brain was like, all right, look, if you're going to do anything a lot, I'm going to optimize that through a process called myelination. And I'm going to wrap fatty tissue around the neurons that you fire in groups a lot. And so those networks, I think if I were going to use your language, I would say circuits begin to form of these interconnected neurons where clusters, whether it's depression-like symptoms, oh, you think this depressive thing a lot. And so this brain region lights up, this other one goes quiet. I'm going to make that easier. I'm going to almost make that your default. And so because I have made the communication between those neurons easier by myelinating them, now that it just takes less caloric resources. So now the state of being, depression, becomes the easiest calorically state for you to be in. And that's how people end up just you repeat your way to joy, misery, whatever. Yeah, totally. And, um, you know, there's a kind of an old neuroscience saying what what uh, fires together, wires together, which mm. is essentially what you just said, right? And so the, the one caveat I think that I put in there is for a lot of folks, you know, especially the early life trauma folks, it's it's less, they're, they're not in a place developmentally if they're a kid or they're, they're, their cognitions are such that they even mm. recognize that. You is know? that part of the problem? They don't have a defense, uh, a sort of thought-based defense mechanism to recontextualize? The, sometimes they don't know what's what's abnormal and normal. I mean, if you're talking about a seven-year-old, you know, or a five-year-old, it's it's hard, right? It's hard to have that level of context. 
but yet they're exposed to these events that create perceptions of not having control that are probably, you know, in that setting accurate, right? If you're, you know, if you're, if it's a kid experiencing some sort of abuse, you know, they don't have, they don't have control, you know? And so that's why, you know, it kind of sets those, some of those individuals up, you know, for future, you know, psychiatric illness. Some of those individuals have, you know, profound resilience, you know, and don't have that problem. And we, so there's been a big focus to try to understand why some people are resilient. They have these really bad early life, you know, trauma um, experiences, and then they go on to be okay. Even despite all of that, others, you know, end up having, you know, a psychiatric diagnosis like depression. What's cool, I think, and where, you know, we've really focused is this idea that just as you're pointing out that you can learn these things, you know, one way, you know, we can actually use um, neurostimulation techniques like non-invasive magnetic stimulation where people are awake and able to talk and watch television and all that stuff while this is going on. And you can actually change, you know, the the brain, you know, connectivity in such a way where you could reestablish dominance of the right brain circuitry, right? You can turn on areas that, you know, maybe have spent, you know, that individual spent a long time, you know, kind of wire it up in a certain way and you can change it so that they can actually clamp down, um, you know, say the sadness region and, and have control over it. And that's been what's been really striking for me as we've been doing a lot of these, these experiments is that, you know, I have patients all the time say to me, you know, I, I don't even understand how I'm able to do this right now. Cause I've never been able to do it. What's this, whatever it is, you know, I had a, um, a patient who, told me that she put her feet on the dashboard of the car every single time her significant other would drive her somewhere. She was so afraid of getting in a car accident, scream at him and be really anxious and really upset and like hated being in the car. And a couple of days into our, you know, really rapid stimulation approach, you know, she knew that she was better because she was like, she sat down in the car, she started they started, you know, getting ready to go. And then the significant others, like, you're not going to put your feet on the dashboard. Like this was like literally every time she get in the car and she's like, I guess I don't need to Whoa. roll the window down and like, let the wind come in. You know what I mean? So mm. it's one of these things or, you know, patients who've come to me after, you know, receiving their, their week of stimulation and they come in the next week and they say, you know, they told me before they started, like, all these psychotherapists told me I wasn't trying hard enough to do the psychotherapy, right? And this weekend, instead of like going to the beach or whatever you'd think they do now that they're feeling well, they went and spent the weekend like reading the, the cognitive behavioral therapy um, workbooks or the mindfulness workbooks or whatever. And they're like, yeah, I just like whipped through it in two hours and did the whole workbook or whatever, you know? Mm. And you're like, you know, one, like, like, how did you do that? Why did you do that? You know? And they're like, cause I, I knew that I couldn't, you know, and it was something kind of inherently not fully functioning in my brain. Now that it is, I needed to prove to myself that I could do it, which I thought was really like important. And kind of anecdotally, I saw enough of that, you know, to where it was like pretty, it's been pretty clear to me that turning these systems on restores folks ability to have kind of full volition and be able to do you know, have real control through choice mm. to your, to your point. And I think kind of at the, 
experiential level, that is what's, you know, f- kind of functionally wrong with depression, you know, is in, in the more kind of moderate to severe states that control is lost. You know, there's, there's too much kind of repetitive behavior based off of avoidance of pain or fear or whatever it is, you know? Whoa. Okay. So, uh, this is very interesting. One thing that I'm particularly, um, interested in right now is AI And I've seen some of the AI, um, basically neural feedback setups that are being developed. As you were talking, I was like, I have a hunch that what we're going to find over time is that this is really patterns of firing in the brain more than like one region. It's going to be a symphony of things. Like there, there are times where you want, you know, the, the anxiety region to be active and the control center to be low, but you, you want those to be appropriate to the given situation. And if I had to guess uh, over time with AI, we'll be able to start matching just like thousands, tens of th- hundreds of thousands of people in these devices, seeing the different setups that they're in. So we know, oh, you're trying to learn right now, being in the stressed out state, that's not going to yeah. be optimal for learning. You need to get into this state. Now, if it's like biofeedback, so I used to have a really bad problem with my, it's actually manifesting in my scalenes, but it was a, a mid back problem, which right. I never would have guessed. Once I had a biofeedback device that would beep at me when I was firing my mid-back, I learned to control my mid-back and then I could solve my problem with my scalings. Super weird. So I have a feeling it's going to be similar. Like if you can learn to control a region of the brain, which I love saying things like this in front of people who can tell me if I'm crazy, uh, but I can, I can actually capture the sense of joy or elation in like little small bits just by thinking about it, by knowing what it's like. And so I can like, put myself in that state. I can't take myself from like, I'm legitimately depressed to, oh my God, I'm on cloud nine, but I can grab these little moments consciously on purpose. And so my hope is that if you have a device that is able to track your brain waves and you know what your target brainwave pattern is, and you can sort of grab, you can train yourself to be in a certain, a learning state or a joyful state or whatever. And one, does that sound crazy? No. Yeah. So that to me is, could be, obviously we'd need data, but that could be really transformational. Absolutely. No, I think the, the, um, the, you know, technology kind of device space within mental health and brain health, it's just, you know, right at the, we're kind of scratching the surface. I mean, the tech that we've been developing to your point is both a location derivation that's in, you know individualize the person using machine learning but then also it's um a pattern of stimulation that in that case sends a message of turn on stay on remember to stay on in that brain region you know and essentially mimicking the sort of learning that you do with say note cards mm. right you write out 60 note cards and you look at it one every minute or something and you get back to the first one about an hour later so we call space learning theory. You don't like just write one out and look at it 50 times and set it down, right? Like people don't do that. They have a stack of note cards. Stimulation can be the same way. You stimulate, you give a certain amount of time for the dendritic spines to enlarge and prime. And about an hour later, you stimulate again. It emulates that same exposure, re-exposure thing that you see with being exposed to a piece of information on the note card. And then about an hour later, you get back to that first note card and you see it again mm. these are not different right it's that idea of being able to kind of lock those memories in but it's very simplistic 
right? We don't, all we kind of know is we can turn the system on or off and kind of send signals in timed patterns to really reinforce turning it on or reinforce turning it off. But to your point, like ideas around using machine learning AI to develop new parameter sets that send more sophisticated signals, send like a, you know, Morse code from the, from the stimulation operator into the brain that's giving actual information, um, you know, is going to be important. And then to your point, also learning how to pick this stuff up and have behavioral techniques to reinforce it before you have to get to a place where you're putting dense amounts of stimulation to the brain and we're calling it a diagnosis, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I think we're only doing that because we're not good at picking it up early enough and doing more preventative stuff. So things get to some, you know, moment where people are not doing well and they're in a high risk situation. And then we, you know, and then we kind of, you know, jump in and treat them with these, you know, technologies. But my hope is that we figure out a way to kind of move it back to your point, find less, less and less invasive things that can train the brain in a way that you didn't, you don't, you kind of never get there or whatever, you know, but Mm. You know, but that's the hope. Yeah, man. If that ends up working out, that'll that'll be transformative. So I'm uh, I am both terrified of AI and probably unreasonably optimistic. Uh, I yeah. I there's patterns, patterns. Everything is patterns, and if we can learn some of those patterns yeah. and can can lock into those patterns in a way that becomes useful. I think this really gets interesting. I think you were just talking about this, but I wouldn't have known to pick up on it except for the fact that I've done a lot of research on you. But um, you were talking about Morse code, like actually being able to play back into the brain. And one thing I've heard you talk about is that we can, and I don't know the method by which you do this, but you can basically record biological patterns for a given state play that back to the brain in some way through, through, uh, through frequency the, yep, through frequencies, yep. and the brain's like, Oh, I know what to do with that frequency yep. pattern. Yep. Tell me about that because it, if what you're saying is that a lack of control, you may hate me putting these words in your mouth, but if, if a lack of control is depression, that, that the, when you put somebody in the state where they feel they have no control, it is the setup that leads you to sort of negatively interpret the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, then being able to memorize the playback of the opposite of that, yeah. lay it over the brain, pull you yeah. out of that into that's a new right. region yeah. uh, would be phenomenal. Yeah. And that's, yeah, you, you, you know, you basically, yeah, you basically have it. So I think we had a paper that came out in the proceedings, of the national Academy of science, like a month ago, one of my um, superstar, um, was a postdoc and a and a research fellow within psychiatry residency. He's faculty now, so he's already kind of moving up the food chain. But um, Anish Mitra, and so he spent ten years um, looking at this phenomenon of, and you know, brain connectivity is reflected in the fluctuations of the of the blood within a given brain region, and so that's reflective of electrical activity. It's a surrogate of electrical activity that we could measure really easily with, with MRI. And so, you know, he was able to find that in brain regions that are connected where we kind of average over how the fluctuations, you know, um, occur within time within that brain region, that there's actually a subtle offset 
between a connected brain region suggesting causality. So if this area is slightly in front of this area, it's likely that this area is signaling to this area, mm. right? And so what he found was that cingulate area and that dorsolateral area, you know, have a temporal offset from each other. And in normal non-depressed individuals, essentially everyone, um, the left dorsolateral, that control region is temporally in front of the cingulate. In depression, some, in this case, 70% of the sample, the cingulate was in front of the dorsolateral anterior insula. In the individuals that responded to our stimulation approach, essentially all of them had this flip. The people that didn't respond, none of them had the flip. And on the post-scan, it flipped back to normal on the people that had um, the abnormality to begin with and had a clinically relevant change in their symptomatology. Hmm. And so what we call, the other kind of interesting thing is what, what we call depression is probably a you know, a combination of multiple things, right? And we saw this 100 years ago with, with idiopathic Parkinson's disease. What we think about is, you know, true to form Parkinson's, right? There's actually a bunch of other things that look like Parkinson's. And, you know, historically, they were all lumped together. Lewy body uh, dementia, um, progressive supranuclear palsy, um, you know, idiopathic Parkinson's disease, you know, other things all lumped together. And then over time, we figured out how to separate them based off of, you know, techniques of, in this case, you know, being able to do kind of postmortem studies of people. But, you know, in the case of depression, I think we're going to use non-invasive biological techniques to say, okay, this group has this particular signaling um, abnormality and this group has something else, you know, and trying to kind of separate that out. But at least in a subpopulation of people, to your point, it's this flipping of the signal. And so the set kind of sadness region and areas around it are signaling to the, the control region, probably having dominance over it. You guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions. And I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing. And a big part of that strict diet is high quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is off Offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. And that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash impact and use code impact to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You will never be able to reach your full potential if you are riddled with stress and have a lot weighing on your mind. I can tell you from my own experiences with stress and negative thought loops, you have to find a way to work through whatever it is that's weighing on you if you're going to have any hope of achieving your goals. Therapy can be an option for working through things and for an online therapy option that is super convenient and flexible, be sure to check out BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, everything is 100% online and getting started is quick and easy. A brief questionnaire matches you with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no extra charge. Get things off your chest, process through things with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash impact theory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash impact theory. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you want to have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. Yeah, man, perception is everything. So going back to why we have such an epidemic of depression and why um, COVID really kicked it off is this. So I- Lack of control. Yeah, so that makes sense to me in terms of why COVID would exacerbate it. I, I have a broader theory that I would love for you to dismantle and help make me smarter that I would have thought was true leading into COVID. Uh, and that is um, Lisa Feldman Barrett. Is she at Stanford? Do you know? She wrote a book called How Emotions Are Made. I don't, I don't remember now where she's from, but um, she talks about how the emotions that we have, we perceive as coming from our thoughts, but in reality, it's a confluence of thoughts, the body, largely the um, gut, and then the brain sort of going back and forth in this communication. You sort of never know which started the whole conversation, but they're going back and forth. And the brain will ultimately create a narrative about why you feel the way that you feel. And having spent a lot of time looking at nutrition, I think a lot about nutrition, obviously the impact that that has on the gut, then if the gut is involved in emotion in communicating with the brain, 
I was looking at the modern world going, okay, our diets are just absolute tragedies. Yeah. We no longer have to exercise to survive. So now exercise becomes completely optional. Um, modern life, especially with social media, is pushing people into isolation. Even if you're around people, you're emotionally distant, you're emotionally isolated. And so you start putting all of that together and everything just deranges just enough that um, especially if you're already predisposed to this because of childhood trauma, now you're just, you're way out of whack. But only some of that I would liken to control, like diet, mm, that's to me sort of a bodily communication. That's microbes that are sort of derailing. Or you may also, and this part, I don't, I don't have, I don't even have another person that has said something along these lines that makes me think this. But when I think about mitochondria, mitochondrial dysfunction, if there's any sort, I mean, there has to be signaling of some kind. So it's like, where are we picking up on that signaling? Is that also part of the body telling us that there's a problem? And if your diet's off, you're going to feel it in the gut and in the mitochondria. So do you think any of that played into pre-COVID and then COVID just exacerbates it with control or is depression really just you feel out of control that's the pattern and when you have it you're in real trouble um i mean and that gets back to the you know the statement i said earlier around you know there are probably multiple things that kind of get lumped into depression mm -hmm. right not everyone you know some people kind of are in an over control phenomenon you know so it's not everybody necessarily has this um has a kind of a perceived loss of control necessarily right and that may be more of a, a problem of us being a kind of lumpers instead of splitters on the diagnosis but to your question i mean it what's hard about um understanding any psychiatric condition is that you need to establish some level of causality right and so the reason why psychiatry is over here neurology is over here is because in neurology you know the the game is where's the lesion you know, and in psychiatry, historically, there is no lesion, right? There's no kind of lesion that we can pick up on on standard imaging methodologies that are employed for because them. the dysfunction just isn't tied to a lesion. Well, it's electrical, you know, effectively. So what what we think about as a lesion really ends up being, you know, in the case of that paper I talked about earlier, flipping of the signaling mm. directionality, it functions kind of like a lesion. So if you take people that have depression from a stroke and you look at you know you look at where all of those strokes fell on a common brain atlas like functional atlas um you know mike fox and others um at harvard found that um you know brain lesions that are functionally connected to that same control region are um you know are associated with depression and, and brain lesions that don't fall with, within a network that's connected to that control region don't hmm. have to, you know, those individuals. Aren't. So if you saw, if I had a stroke and you looked at it, you would determine by the region of the brain that I had the stroke and whether I'm now at higher risk for a stroke related depression or not. Yeah. So they, wow. I think they're doing those prospectively now, but in a retrospective way at a group level, you can put all those lesions in the brain and, and the vast majority of them would, if you had depression from stroke would be functionally connected to that same control region. And so, you know, it looks like a lot of what we think about as depression ends up being, you know, that sort of a problem, but, but to your point, right. It's, it's a complicated, it's a complicated thing, right? If you, you know, if you stimulate on the vagus nerve, 
um, in the, you know, in the neck, um, you can, you know, produce signals up into the brain and treat depression, right? And and there's a huge Medicare funded study going on right now to to start paying for something like that, where you actually stimulate a cranial nerve, you know, that that also, you know, uh, propagates down to the gut, propagates to the heart, you know, and if you stimulate and go up, it'll, um, you know, it'll affect the, those same core brain regions to, to your point, the brain and the gut and the heart are all, you know, you know, well interconnected. And so, you know, causal mapping and understanding of some of the questions that you're talking about is exactly kind of the way to do it, you know, and you can actually, it's not a hypothesis. You can actually test it, right? Because you can, you can cause interruptions or you can accentuate signals in any of those spots and then see how it changes the mood. You can do the same thing with functional, with with neurostimulation, either invasive or non-invasive. You can look at the same sort of thing with lesions, like stroke lesions. And with all of that information, we've been able to develop maps that tell us kind of what is connected to what and what systems are signaling. But it's still really early days. I mean, I tell people this is like 1950s, 1960s cardiology. You know, it's it's not you know, developed at the level where, where there are 10 text, you know, 10 chapters, I'm sorry, 10 volumes of a, of a textbook, you know, like in cardiology, where you see a rhythm on an EKG and you know exactly what it is, what's causing it, you know, what it's called, that whole Mm -hmm. thing. Like psychiatry is very far away from that, that reality, but there's definite inroads in the last 10 years to where we're headed in that direction. There's a clear signal. I think that we're we're going to go there and that we're going to be able to map it out. And to your point earlier about the, you know, where AI I think is really useful is that this is such a complicated, you know, process and it's so much more complex than just simply what's going on measurements in the heart, but it's these complex dynamics between the heart and the gut and the brain that it's going to take, you know, a lot of kind of dense data collection to really also understand at the behavioral level, what's going on. Um, you know, I think COVID exacerbated kind of a cultural, you know, problem that we're having around being separated, being, you know, you know, being on Facebook instead of seeing somebody in person, that whole piece of things, which also contributes to, to depressed mood. And then it kind of take away the control factor, take away the ability to, to see people in person wearing masks, being at home, you know, being kind of, stuck at home for a period of time or whatever it is. And uh, I think that sense of control goes, goes further and further down. You know, we think about depression, like we think about, you know, how many fingers you have on your hand or something, but it's actually on a, it's on a gradient. You know, we just draw a line and say, this is like the syndrome that is depression and below this it's normal. But if you look at it, like the scales that we use for what's normal people can be, you know, reasonably symptomatic, you know, at the high range of that, you know, so they'll still, somebody can be what we call in remission or, you know, no depression and still have 10 points on a 60 point scale. Right. And, and I'd argue that actually like, like most people aren't a zero, you know, most are not, are not. Yeah. I mean, we see it. We see people, I mean, it was funny the other day, one of one of the patients running for, through our trial, um, you know, my wife works with me at Stanford too, and she's a psychiatrist and runs a lot of the clinical operation. And so, 
sent a me- you know, one of the other guys that's working with me sent a message and said, this patient's a zero. And then like the conversation was, oh, how great would it be to be a zero? Because nobody, a zero means you slept eight hours last night, you fell asleep immediately, you slept all through the night, you woke up rested, you're completely not anxious, you're, you're completely optimistic and in a good mood, and you, you got up without any problem and you got going and, you know, so it's, it's, it's hard to, you know, when you get down to it, I think a lot more people, even than the percentages that we think about that are in true to form depressive episodes are having some, you know, kind of mild symptoms and, you know, the, the number of those people that, um, you know, number of people that were experiencing those mild symptoms, I think in COVID probably went up too. We don't track that, but I think that would be my suspicion as well. What's interesting and kind of, you know, one of my theories I think will happen in the future is just like with blood pressure and cholesterol and all these other things where we say, oh, this is the bad number. And then we're going to, we shift it. Oh, and we're now we're going to be more conservative. This is actually the bad number. And you need to have your LDL even lower, or you need to have your blood pressure even lower or whatever it is. I think that we're going to get to a place as we get better at this, um, tracking it and treating it that, you know, the number of what's acceptable, what's normal or whatever may move a little bit too. Cause I think somebody on a 10 points on a 60 point scale, that's, that's probably not ideal either. Right. You know? Yeah. I was going to say, I haven't been a zero since I was like nine. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, getting to a zero would be amazing. In fact, I have struggled pretty profoundly with anxiety. Mm -hmm. Uh, Part of why I came up with the thesis around diet was that was the big fix for me. It didn't take me to a zero though. I would say it, it alleviated my symptoms by 70%. It took it from completely unmanageable. What the hell is going on in my life? This is really a problem to, eh, okay, back to, you know, where I've been since I was a little kid, yeah. where I would say I'm probably more prone to anxiety than the average person, yeah. but, um, from, a I don't need to take medication or anything like that. So, um, that is the thought of being at a zero is like somebody saying that I could be a superhero. So that would, when I was researching you, I was like, yo, transcranial magnetic stimulation is something I would very much like to try. I yeah. want to do your five day oh, cool. process. I don't know yes. how hard that is. If that's like, I can just roll up and we zap me or like, yeah, we could chat about it. Yeah. but that, that would be crazy because I've told my wife when I'm, when I'm anxious, I feel like a mortal. And when my anxiety is at a zero, I truly feel like a superhero. Yeah. And it, and it does happen every now and then I'll be just in a perfect zone of comfort where I'm supremely confident in my abilities and something, the stakes are really low, you know, and it's like, okay, yeah, this, this is how I want to feel all the time. And the fact that I almost never feel like that, it's, it's been sort of the Holy grail of what I've been chasing since I started researching the brain. And it's interesting because I never put my finger on control before But that really would be a very easy way to recontextualize what brain plasticity allowed me to believe in is that I controlled my future. My future wasn't controlled by uh, my current level of intellect, which was my big struggle. I didn't think I was smart enough to do the things I wanted to do. And once I realized, oh, wait, I can get better. Then it was like, okay, now I felt in control. I didn't I didn't conceive of it that way. I just felt like there's something I can do. Um, But that's really, really fascinating. Okay, so keeping it um, very tangible for people for a minute. So COVID hits, people are getting isolated. They are freaked out about what the future feels like. They definitely feel completely out of control. 
did you have a, or do you have a best practices for people in hard times like that to avoid sliding into depression? Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, the kind of standard answer there would, right. would be that folks, they had a therapist to go and, you know, chat with their therapist about what's going on. There's how, how does, how do we make therapy work for us? Is this cognitive behavioral therapy, mm. talk therapy? Yeah, I think that's for all, like a lot of the digital therapeutics work that, that folks have been trying to, you know, because therapists are hard to get. There's, you know, many times you're paying out of pocket, they're expensive in the you know, in Bay Area, I'm sure in LA, it's the same thing. Like it's, you know, it's a complicated process to get a hold of a therapist. So trying to figure out ways to scale that through digital means makes a lot of sense. You know, there hasn't been a whole lot of preventative work that's been done in psychiatry. Um, you know, it's mostly been you have the, you now have this diagnosis. Now we're going to start doing something. Mm. I don't think that's the fault of any one. Um, I don't think that's the fault of the field or anything. It's just like it's hard enough to treat it when it gets to this point. But I'd argue, actually, it may be better to, um, to you know, try to intervene earlier. We tried to do this study um, with orthopedic surgery at Stanford. It was just very hard to to coordinate and kind of figure out how to do it, um, you know, with all, everything else that was going on. But people that had motor vehicle accidents, broke their leg or broke their hip or whatever, they have this huge conversion rate to PTSD and depression later. Whoa. Yeah. Why PTSD? They, they just went through a traumatic event with a car accident. You know, they thought they may have died. They may die, you know, yeah. in that in that moment that they were, you know, head to head collision or whatever it is, you know. And so they have these traumatic experiences and it's, and it's an opportunity to try to prevent, to your point, you know, could you use brain stimulation to try to get in there and prevent this, you know, future um, symptomatic event from happening? Um you know, there's been some work. We know that heart heart attacks, myocardial infarctions. You, you know, you have this post MI um, depression risk. You know, and so there's been some work there trying to think about SSRIs. And okay, so hold on. It, uh, do you think that that's happening because of the brain heart like physical yes. connection? Mm -hmm. So it's not a psychological thing. Of I'm terrified. I had a heart attack. This is yo, there's a real physiological connection between these two and they are communicating that something is bad and that leads to the depression. Yeah, I mean, that, that'd be my suspicion. Like, and, is, know, that, is that um, counterintuitive for the field or is that like, yeah, yeah, everybody assumes that to be true? Um, you know, we've done some work in this. There've been a couple other people that have done work in this where actually like the stimulation approach that we're using, you can decelerate the heart rate. So we know- actually that it's a direct connection because you decelerate the heart rate by starting at the brain. Yeah. Whoa. So you stimulate here and you can very reproducibly drop the heart rate. I, we Are gave you a mimicking a condition of all is well. Mm -hmm. Whoa. It's wild, okay. Huh? Yeah. So if you turn this system on, it's involved in the parasympathetic control of the heart, you kind of drop the heart rate, right? So you end up having a reduction of heart rate by, toning up control which makes some level of sense because that's our parasympathetic system is set up to where you know we're perceiving that everything's okay and you know we're able to you know digest our food and have a lower heart rate you know and, and you know, and counterbalanced by the sympathetic system which is this kind of fight or flight 
process, right? And so, um, so yeah, so you can you can decelerate the heart rate from the brain. Um, it's mechanistically, I think there's been some work on this. Um, you know, as far as trying to understand exactly why that happens, but it definitely happens. I mean, people that have heart attacks um, have a much higher risk of post heart attack depression. Depression is now one of the four leading risk factors for having a heart attack. I'm sorry. Why? I mean, it's pro- just that two way communication. Yeah. I mean, we, we don't know enough for me to be able to tell. Being depressed increases your risk of heart attack. Yes. As much as diabetes. Is and it ramping your heart rate over time or? Because I, uh, I always think of a heart attack as being about. An, an occlusion like blood has been blocked by physical blockage mm-hmm. so is the in fact this is uh, we're gonna fractal here very fast yeah. uh there's two things now that are tied in my mind i'll let yeah. you tell me how we're gonna tease them out so yeah. uh the fact that depression increases your risk of heart attack but that i assume heart attack has a physical reason for happening and is not purely psychological but maybe you're well, gonna tell me this not sure. well i mean i don't think anything's you know we this kind of brain mind dualism thing it's like we've divorced these things that aren't really divorced Mm. conceptually you know freud kind of started that process but it's not actually you know they're not actually separated right and so what what we feel and those negative emotions and all of that um are just play to your point playing playing out in brain networks that are ultimately connected to the heart we know if we can it, we can slow the heart rate down by turning this region up. They're connected. So whatever, if if this isn't sending signaling down to the heart, then the, the heart's not receiving a signal that it normally receives in wellness. Now, why from, from the vagus into the heart and the coronaries, why that happens, we don't know, but it definitely happens. There's something called Takasubo's cardiomyopathy. So this is another interesting one. I was just going to say that. <laughs> yeah. You, you know about this? Yeah. Never heard of this in my life. Oh, okay. I don't even, I don't even know what you just said. Yeah. So it's, it's, um, it's, it's Japanese word. I, it, and it's, uh, I think it's like, um, I, well, I, I don't remember the translation. I feel like it's like some sort of basket or something, but, hmm. um, but essentially it's a ballooning of the heart. And so it can happen, um, from a stroke in the brain in the same, same connected brain regions. It can also, it's also called the broken heart disease. It can happen with an intense emotional experience. What? Yeah. So when you say it's ballooning, is it adding muscle fiber to the heart? Like the the heart kind of dilates and they go into heart failure. So you have to like do all sorts of heart failure maneuvers. It dilates, meaning the empty space grows larger? Yeah. You have a cardiomyopathy. Yeah. You have this, you know, problem with your heart pumping. And you can actually get that just from a a what we would sort of colloquially call a broken heart yeah i mean it's extremely rare like for wow. listeners like <laughs> like it, it's a very unlikely event you know mm. it doesn't happen very often but if you there was a study that came out a couple of years ago that i think 85 or 90 percent of the people that had it had a pre-existing psychiatric diagnosis mm. right and then they had some you know somebody died or something like that a major life stressor and then all of a sudden they ended up you know, on the cardiac unit with Takasubos. And so, yes, you can have physical things that happen in the heart from things that are happening in your brain. And the idea that somehow the, a psychiatric illness is less real, 
just like a, that's like a fiction, right? Like it's just as real, right? It, it you you wouldn't be able to have a post-stroke depression if it wasn't just as wired in as having a post-stroke hemiparesis where you can't move your arm. It's just that they're they're more complex systems, right? And there's a level of semi volitionality to it, right? Like I'm depressed, but in certain circumstances, I can house is on fire. I can run out of the house even if I feel like I can't really move or do much, you know, in the extreme case of catatonia, you can't, but most people with depression, you know, can, can amount enough, you know, energy to be able to leave a burning building or something like that. And then they're kind of back to their, their base state. And so I think folks, you, you know, it's, it's very wired in, it's very biological. It's just as, I think just as biological as many other things that we, that we think about as like purely biological. It's just a matter of really discovery and understanding and coming up with tools. So that's what we've been focused on is just like, how do we build, how, how do we build tools? And I'm a very agnostic tool builder. I, I really don't care like what the social perception of the tool is. I really don't care what, you know, um, which is what we got into psychedelics, you know, study ketamine and do neurostimulation. Like if, if it's safe for the patient and it's acceptable for the patient and, and it's something that I would, suggest to my mother brother spouse then um you know and, and the risk benefit is right um do no harm and all those things right then we'll look at it you know we don't have any um we don't have any kind of off limits because i have some conceptual problem with something you know um and so i think that's that's been very useful and it's given us the ability to ask a lot of interesting questions um because we're willing to go into these spaces that, um, you know, not not so many people are, are willing to go in within the mental health kind of research space. So. Yeah, I'm I am incredibly uh, eager to pursue that path and figure out um, what theory led you to psychedelics. But first, there was another thing that feels related to the um, the emotional trauma creating heart trauma connection that I wanted to talk about, which is what you call psychiatry 3.0. Mm -hmm. So this idea that, um, in fact, if, if you don't mind, walk people through psychiatry one, two, and now 3.0. Um, yeah, that, that yeah definitely. And this is a, a concept, you know, not just for me, buddy of mine, Jonathan Downer has been talking about this as well. It's a, it's a concept of, um, you know, we've basically had three major epochs within psychiatry and mo kind of modern modern psychiatry with, you know, Freud forward. Um, the first one being that the problem is inherently a content problem. Content of your thoughts? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And psychotherapy effectively is, you know, the ability to, you know, to introduce different ways of looking at the information or different frame points of view or framing of it or introducing new relationships in the case of the ther patient therapist relationship where the dynamic changes so the person can have insights and that, you know, that's, that's basically psychiatry 1.0, the kind of transition between 1.0, which is psychotherapy focused and 2.0, which is, you know, psychopharmacology focused. There was a major kind of historical issue there. And there, there were two camps, you know, there were the analysts, psychotherapists, and there was psychopharmacology psychopharmacologists and that happened over you know the 
50s, 60s, 70s, even into, you know, into the 80s. And some of this still extends into today. And this is going to be SSRIs and things like that. Yeah. You know, like Thorazine, the early antipsychotics that took the schizophrenic patient out of long-term care. So there's a big exodus of patients, um, you know, early monoamine oxidase inhibitors and tricyclic drugs that were the precursors to SSRIs. Those drugs really, you know, kind of um, jarred the idea that it was totally content because if you can just take a pill and then all of a sudden, to kind of your point, the person has a total change in perspective, how could that be if it's a content problem? Um, and then what I would say is psychiatry 3.0, kind of circuit-based thinking about you know mental illness, aligns it with neurology, neurosurgery, you know, and all of those specialties into kind of a common circuit language. You know, I can have, I'm trained as a psychiatrist and neurologist, but, you know, kind of, I can have a psychiatric dialogue on the circuit level with a, you know, fellow neurologist or a neurosurgeon, and you're speaking the same language. And we've never really been there. We haven't been there since pre-Freud you know, with the kind of discussion around what the problem is with a patient with psychiatric illness, with epilepsy, whatever. And so what's useful about psychiatry 3.0 is it, it it embraces the first two, right? Because it takes the first two into account and says, okay, if your psychotherapy or if your drug moves this circuit, then, in you know, our stimulation moves the circuit, we can have a... um what we what we would call a modality independent kind of predictive biomarker right something like this or you know area that changes or however you want to think about it and so it's more about the end product of the kind of biological change and that as a tool maker and as somebody who thinks a lot about making you know building tools and building measurements of those tools you know it makes you very agnostic like how do we figure out what what the problem is and then how do we move the problem circuitry around such that we understand we can even further confirm it? And then it's just a simple thing of does this move that circuit, you know, and it gets us out of all these theories and stuff, which I'm less inclined to you know, necessarily be thinking about, you know, I'm much more just trying to figure this out. And I think that's what um, that's what psychiatry 3.0 effectively is, is the ability to develop a circuit-based understanding and then develop new treatments based off of um, circuit measures and then then think about the existing treatments based off of those same circuit measures and really get us away from the, you know, the, the negative framing in psychiatry 1.0 was the framing of the schizophrenogenic mother, you know, this whole idea that somehow you're parenting a lot of schizophrenia, the you know, that person's parent led them to develop schizophrenia, which has been totally debunked, right? Interesting. So what was that original theory? Yeah, you know, there's a, you know, kind of over-controlling mother, you know, and, and all of that sort of thing. And then all of a sudden this patient had, you know, had schizophrenia. And, and It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, 
Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation, and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. One way I make sure my business is moving in the right direction is to ensure we are constantly becoming more efficient. Because in my experience, inefficiencies will eat away your profits and leave you with a dying business. But with the right technology, your business can get the insights it needs to become efficient and ultimately unstoppable. And that is why I recommend you check out NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all of it into one platform and one source of truth. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors that are massively inefficient. Guys, inflation is no joke. So check out NetSuite and see how you can cut costs and boost performance at the same time, like the 37,000 companies that have already made the switch. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Do not wait. Head right now to netsuite.com slash theory. Again, that's netsuite.com slash theory. Get the information you need. Head to netsuite.com slash theory. Oh, now, do you think there's second. anything in the wives' tale of that, that it's uh, early trauma, you feel out of control because the mother's controlling you? So it ultimately, it ends up being a circuit thing. Because my my next question in understanding the circuits is, is the circuit the manifestation of another root cause or is the circuit the root cause? And I couldn't do anything to influence it because I can influence it from the outside. So yeah. it seems like if, if I can fix it from the outside, I can probably break it oh, yeah. from the outside. Yeah. And it's certainly if you let me control diet and things like that, I can probably really do some damage. So I'm curious, I get it that it isn't just mom is what made me this, but is there some element of what they're groping for is that person with a mom that was that unhinged, they're probably this cascading set of problems that are relatively predictable. Yeah. I mean, you know, that particular idea has been debunked. You know, the the next thing I was going to say was this, you know, chemical imbalance kind of idea, which has essentially been debunked. The idea that are wait, wait, wait. I think we shouldn't blow past that because even for me, that stops me. So you're saying psychiatry 2.0, uh, this is a serotonin imbalance, false. 
we've it's it's not a it's not a problem where there isn't an you know the messaging historically has been there isn't enough your brain is faulty because there isn't enough of x neurotransmitter in place and then therefore you need this drug and it's not really you know there's no evidence of that right um and so we've not yeah so but to plant a flag which i'd love you to speak to uh ssris selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor they work they in do some work. percentage of people but it isn't because of the way that it's balancing your serotonin is that the conclusion? yeah so the idea i mean what we think is really going on there because it you know as you know it takes kind of a while for it to work a month two months whatever is that it's actually upregulating plasticity to your point mm. right and specifically up- bdnf yep yeah and so for people that don't know do you uh, mind? brain-derived neurotrophic factor yeah so it's just like a brain you know kind of growth promoting factor right and so you know it's probably more like that or more like it's having an interaction with some of the you know kind of dendritic spines that sort of thing much less about acutely upregulating serotonin because if it if it worked like that then it would work in a day or two days or three days right um it it actually takes time for it to work Hmm. because there's something else um more complex going on and you know the the problem at a fundamental level is you put a drug in your body that upregulates also to your point earlier gi serotonin like gut serotonin and all that we don't have conclusive human studies saying this is how this works for ssris we've done that with ketamine right where you know my lab uh, in collaboration with alan chatsberg and boris heifetz at stanford um done to my knowledge the only study that's totally blocked um, an antidepressant effect, and that was with ketamine, where we were able to use a opiate blocker and actually block the antidepressant effects totally of ketamine with with co-administration of an opiate blocker. When you give somebody that same person ketamine with with a placebo pill, they have a they have a perfectly good you know remission from ketamine. So what I'm drawing from that is that ketamine is not working at the disassociative level; it's working at the opiate level. It's the opiate level is necessary. It may not hmm. be sufficient, but it's necessary, you know, and those people had the same amount of dissociation when they had the, the naltrexone. So it's, that's not sufficient. The naltrexone being the thing that blocked the opiate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That is very interesting. Yeah. But to get back to the SSRI thing, you know, I think that the big messaging there, which I think that, you know, the field is known for a long time, but I think optically there's been over the last couple of years, a real intent to walk back from is that there's some missing thing in your brain that the, that pharma is somehow going to, you know, that these SSRIs or whatever it is are going to replace. And I'd argue that the neurostimulation work that we're doing even further accentuates that if depression is as a serotonin problem in that way, stimulation shouldn't be the answer, right? You don't, it only be replacement of, of you know um neurotransmitters that are lacking or whatever right it's this idea that it's really a circuit problem and that's kind of what psychiatry 3.0 gets into now stimulation of circuits releases neurotransmitters so it's not it's not divorced from that idea it's just much more complicated than that idea mm. but also empowering because it doesn't seem like you need any of that stuff in your system to get better 
you can get better without any of it in your system. It really, it's just really about engaging the brain circuitry that's involved. So yeah, I think, you know, each, each era kind of debunked the last era and recontextualized the last era to understand it more, but it's not kicking any treatments out to your point. SSRIs have saved lots of lives. They're, you know, you introduce an SSRI into a country and the, the suicide rates go down, you know, so we know that, that those drugs, you know, do, um, you know, do have an effect. The issue ultimately ends up being that not everybody responds to them what we call treatment resistance or hard to treat depression or whatever term you want to use. And in those individuals, those are the individuals that we study. We don't study treatment naive people. Those are. Do you have any sense of what the treatment resistant people have in common? Yeah, that's part of what we're trying to figure out now. Some of that flipping of the signal that I was talking about earlier is one potential. How easy it is to flip the signal for them? Oh, just the fact that it's flipped, you know? We don't know. We know in a highly treatment resistant population that most of them had it, but going back and looking actually at the broader treatment naive depressive population mm -hmm. to understand that, um, you know, to understand it, you know, in the context of people that are treatment resistant versus treatment responding with a given oral antidepressant, you know, um, you know, Leanne Williams and others have been trying to look at that as it relates to kind of earlier stage treatments and how to do predictions with brain, brain circuitry. Um, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a very hard problem to solve because we're, we don't know how the treatments work and we, you know, or at least the oral antidepressants, we don't fully know how they work and we don't fully know in a given individual, what the brain circuitry differences are. And so you're, you're kind of, you have two variables that aren't well controlled. And so that's why we've focused primarily on things like stimulation where you can say, okay, I'm stimulating here. I, I know this isn't going into the rest of my brain. I know it isn't going into my body. I'm just stimulating here. And then I'm trying to figure out what's different about the people that get well from just stimulating here versus the people that don't get well at, controls a lot more of it so that you can derive some sort of answers in humans. In mice, we have a lot of really cool science around that, but, you know, translating that's been hard, you know, as far as drug effects and all that. Mm. So. Man, one thing I'd be very curious to see people look at would be BDNF um, and specifically BDNF and recidivism. So as you're talking about it, one of the things that if somebody came to me and they said, Hey, I'm depressed. The first thing I'm going to say is get your diet under control, meaning basically don't eat sugar, uh, whole foods, and then exercise. Yep. Now exercise, I never really knew. I have no idea why it works, yeah. uh, but certainly exercise spikes BDNF. Mm -hmm. um, I've heard BDNF referred to as miracle grow for the brain. And if what this is, and the reason I I would love to see it looked at with recidivism. So let's say somebody does your five-day protocol. Uh, so for people that haven't sort of put it together yet, uh, you have transcranial magnetic stimulation. You put a device in the head that zaps them, basically gets the circuits to go in the right order again. Um, so we're doing that. But then my question is, at the end of the five days, what do the people have in common where that lasts for a long time? 
And what do the people have in common where that falls off really fast? Now, I have no idea, but this at yeah. least would be testable is what are the either the BDNF response rate to the treatment or the baseline levels of BDNF? Like, yeah. are they BDNF super producers? Low, they're probably low already, or they yeah. wouldn't be in the study if my hypothesis is correct. But then as we test them, we can see like of that population, like which like pumps that harder, which lower. And then if the people that were in the the responder BDNF group, meaning they they create more of it, if they had a longer shelf life of efficacy of the protocol, then it's like, oh, maybe yep. there's something there, right? That's really interesting. That would certainly explain, because it's my understanding, I could be wrong about this, but it's my understanding that uh, exercise has a higher efficacy rate than SSRIs. Is that true? Um, you'd have to look. I'd have to look at the study. I mm-hmm. mean, I think that there is definitely um, in mild, kind of mild, even maybe moderate depression. There's good evidence that exercise is very effective. You know, aerobic exercise, uh, mind more than weightlifting. Um, to I, I haven't seen. You know, there haven't been any studies at scale you know there's it's usually like single site studies sort of thing and they're comparing like a standard treatment versus um you know one exercise uh, regimen i'm not aware of multiple different you may have this study uh at your fingertips but multiple different exercise regimen regimens versus say a standard treatment like an oral mm. um antidepressant SSRI. i don't have it at my fingertips but that is a very worthy thing to yeah. look into i'd be super curious to see what that is the other thing about exercise so this goes into your psychiatry 1.0 2.0 uh so if content is part of the problem it just it's not sufficient to explain the phenomena yeah. uh if I were, if I really wanted someone to feel good about themselves, like I literally just had a woman come to me. She was really upset. She had just had, she got scammed basically mm-hmm. and lost, I don't know if everything, but lost a lot yeah. and was at a dark place in her career, also got scammed. And so she was just like really down on herself. Yeah. And I was like, look, if I had just lost everything, the first, this is so weird. I'm putting things together in real yeah. time. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, what, what I said to her is if I lost everything, the first thing I would do is start working out because when you work out, you realize you have complete control yeah. over your body, over yep. what you eat, yep. over the way you look, yep. how you feel, which again, man, you really put something together for me. Uh, so that is interesting. So working out will make you feel better about yourself. Mm-hmm. One, because you'll just start improving. Two, you have control yep. and that sense of like, I can do the right things and I can end up in a better situation. I can change the way I look, which, hey, people can, I'm agnostic. Like like you're agnostic about what the tool ends up being. Yeah. I, I'm agnostic as to why looking good makes people feel better, but it does. Yeah. So you can whine and cry that people shouldn't want their ass to look great in jeans, but it is super motivating yeah. for humans. Yep. Um, man, that's interesting. I will be very curious to see what comes of all that. There was some studies where they... Botox, glabellar, right here, this muscle here, and uh, treat depression because they can't scowl. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, that's that's one idea, right? Is that if you, you know, there's some feedback kind of where the more you smile, the better you feel, you know, that sort of thing. And if you can block kind of frown muscles, maybe you know, and these things are, you know, kind of wired all the way back um, into motion circuitry. So it 
it makes some sense that, um, you know, that intervening even in those places would make sense to have a mood improving effect, but still kind of grounded in this idea of it being ultimately um, seeable within the brain circuitry, you know? That idea of the expression you wear on your face controlling your emotions is one of the things that got me to start saying to myself at first, you're having a biological experience, was mm-hmm. um, my I, I work a lot. Uh, and this was also true when I was younger and my wife and I were just married. Yeah. And we would inevitably get in arguments on Saturday. And it was like the only day that we had to spend together. Yeah. And so... I, I am slow to anger, but once I get angry, it's not as true anymore, but it used to be once I got angry, I would stay angry for a very long time. So I ended up writing this note and giving it to my wife. And I said, the next time I get mad, just read me this letter. And in the letter, I said, Hey, me, it's me. There, there, there's no ulterior motive here. You know that if you stay mad all day, you're going to regret this. You've never once stayed mad and been like, I'm so glad I was mad all day. Uh, so what I want you to do right now is laugh out loud. Because you know that if you force yourself to, because it's from that study where they put a pencil in your mouth and you bite down and it sort of forces you into this faux smile. And I would not be surprised if there's a replication crisis around that, but laughing for sure will change your neurochemistry. And so I did it. She only had to read me the letter once because when I burst into laughter, I, it, changed my neurochemistry so rapidly, partly because I just felt ridiculous, but in an amusing way. And it changed my neurochemistry so fast and so profoundly that I was like, oh my God. Now at the time, what I said to myself is you're just a neurochemical processing plant. Now maybe I'm just a circuitry or circuit board and you know, I'm turning on the right circuits, but that was like, whoa, that little thing has had such a big impact on my marriage that realizing how by manipulating my face, I can make myself feel differently. That's just weird to me, but it's so useful. Yeah. I mean, I think that, yeah, we're this reverberating system on itself, right? And if you can impact some aspect of it, then you can change the system. And so it it makes a lot of sense that, yeah, those are essentially, um, you know, psychotherapeutic techniques in, in many ways, you know, like a CBT sort of technique. So, yeah. That's awesome. Now, when you're not on camera, do you have a secret hypothesis about how this all adds up from a root cause perspective? Like what is all of this? I know you need data and I know you don't, nobody knows right now, but do you have a sort of mental map in your brain that, you know, will probably get debunked over time, but that anchors you to what you look at next? One of the most provocative papers that's come out over the last you know, couple of years as it relates to thinking about psychiatric illness and serotonin and that whole story is this um, this paper that came out of um, UC Davis a couple of months ago in science where they they showed that in um, if you were to kind of agonize the 5 the intracellular 5-HT2A receptors um, with the neurons you're able to produce changes in dendritic spine um, and producing dendritic spine enlargement um, but you know, they weren't able to see that with extracellular 5-HT2A receptors. We think about these as serotonin receptors, but the problem with that kind of conceptualization of them is that serotonin um doesn't cross through the cell membrane, so it doesn't seem to get into 
the 5-HT2A receptors um, that are intracellular and agonize them um, because they're not lipophilic enough. And so the substances that do cross that are lipophilic and seemingly agonize these intracellular receptors, the only ones that seem to be responsible pr for producing these dendritic spine enlargements that we think are probably linked to antidepressant effects are um, psychedelic compounds. You know, and folks have over time theorized, although this is completely unproven, um, that the brain actually has its own endogenous, at least dimethyltryptamine production. I've heard that. Right. And um, there have been a number of animal human studies and epilepsy patients and CSF and all of this stuff trying to trying to look at that. None of it's been particularly conclusive, but it's interesting, right? Why would you have a receptor that we were thinking about as a serotonin receptor in a place that's inaccessible to serotonin? Mm. And you end up, you know, is that is that like a vestigial receptor? right? Like our appendix or tonsils or whatever. It's just mm. vestigial and it's not, you know, nothing endogenously activates it, which is probably the least provocative thing to think about if that science paper replicates and that's a real, that's a real, you know, consistent finding. Um, if, if we endogenously make DMT, that's kind of wild, right? You know, because as a schedule one substance like mm. it's something that that we you know that u.s government officials have blocked us from getting you know from a plant um but if the brain makes it it kind of turns that whole thing on its head don't we also make opioids and cannabinoids yeah so yeah certainly the, they have a long history of blocking things that we already make in yeah. the body yeah that's fair uh yeah. okay that's super interesting so i'm going to put it in my words. So there is potentially a receptor in the brain that is designed for psychedelics, at least some subset of what we think of as psychedelics. It's yeah. I mean, it's yeah. And that would be the third idea is that it's there because of some exogenous use. Yeah. It's definitely, Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. I wasn't even thinking about that. So that from an evolutionary standpoint it's possible that we pass through a period where use was common enough that the brain evolved to use it for mm -hmm. lack of a better word yeah that would be the third idea and and you know the, so the, the number two and number three are obviously very provocative but it's not really explainable that this is it's mm -hmm. not you and know, can we see have has there been any study done where we give people a psychedelic and then look at if it's binding to those receptors yeah that was part of what the uc davis folks we're doing right? so they see it it is happening yeah yeah and and um it, you know only and the dendritic spines do grow yep. as a result yep yeah and and you can get it if you make if you kind of um so the experiment that was interesting that they did was they also you know used chemical agents to make the cell membrane more permeable something that you couldn't do with a human brain because it would be problematic but for the purposes of 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 understanding this at the cellular level they were able to make you know the cell membrane more permeable so that serotonin could get through and then if serotonin can actually get through then it does agonize that receptor and it does also do that and, and change the dendritic spines but it's one of these things where that's probably not what's actually going on and you you know uh normally because it's not actually permeable and so that it draws up these other questions of is this effectively a, a you know a 
receptor that that receives um, you know input from other non serotonin sources. And um, yeah, you know, I I think um, figuring that out is going to be very. If that's true, figuring out why that is is going to be really central to understanding a lot of kind of sociocultural um, reasons for mental illness, why they're there, what it is, why that receptor is in that particular place. I mean, it's it just opens up a whole whole host of questions that that we definitely don't have any answers to. Okay. So did people uh, start deciding that there must be DMT endogenously produced because they saw these receptors and knew that it would fit in? No, that's, this was way before. It, it was theories about why people have these near-death experiences mm-hmm. or these kind of phenomenon in and around death. And so but we have never been able to uh, validate that. There have been studies, you know, CSF studies in humans and various animal studies, um, but it's it's not well established, right? Um, Rick Straussman, who's a psychiatrist, I think he was at University of New Mexico, did all this work with DMT in the 90s and early 2000s, um, published a book on it, um, trying to understand what DMT is. And, you know, in his book, he theorizes about endogenous DMT and the fact that you know, the idea that it may, may be present. Um, but yeah, has it been enough work to kind of conclusively establish it? And there hasn't really been a real reason to do it before this UC Davis paper, because it was like, yeah, that may be there, but like, you know, there's, it's not like there's a lock without a key. And now mm-hmm. all of a sudden it's like, oh, there there's may a be a lock key. with a key. You know, there may be a door that you can only get to in a certain way. And it's, and it's, um, you know, I think it's it's a pretty pretty important question to answer. If that really, if a couple more labs can replicate this and show that that's the case, then it's going to be important to understand that because that means something inherent about, ultimately about how our brain plasticity works, mm. right? You know, and, and curious, right? If you did have endogenous DMT, when does endogenous DMT get released? You know, does it, People think it's released during these near-death experiences. Does it get released during sleep? Does it get released during high, you know, high exertion exercise, you know, mm-hmm. where you hit these kind of flow states, you know? I mean, these are all the sort of questions, you know, that uh, that we have no answers for, but are just kind of interesting, you know? Um, yeah. All right. So I want to talk about treatment, treatment-resistant depression and... Um, psychedelics. So I, I have never done, I I've microdosed psilocybin. I noticed effectively nothing. And mm-hmm. then as I pushed it, pushed it a little bit, it started to feel a little bit like I was drunk, but like, meh. yeah. Uh, so I've never done a macro dose where I expected something to happen, Yeah. but nonetheless, when somebody comes to me and is like, yo, I've been struggling with this for a long time. Like I'm really scared. I'm going to take my own life. One of the things that obviously go get therapy immediately, do not pass go. I'm not the guy to talk to, but as by way of making a checklist to run by your therapist, here are things that I would say, um, try all the things that we know work. And if none of that works, then I would 
I personally, in my own life, would not consider myself to have tried everything until I had tried. I'd start with MDMA, which I know is outside of yeah. um, technically being a psychedelic, but it's just yeah. from uh, my my whole theory around it's the context, it's your frame of reference, yep. it's the simulation yep. is glitching, and it's a way to rapidly reorient the simulation. Everything is good, and to revisit mm-hmm. your, whatever problem you're having through that lens of like everything's good. I love everyone. I'm hopeful. Uh, if that also didn't work, then I would move on to um, like more traditional psychedelics. I'm curious, and I only say that because I've read enough headlines. I haven't really gone into the yeah. studies, but I've read enough headlines to know there's. It seems like there's really something there. Yep. Obviously, warrants further exploration, but really seems to be um, that treatment-resistant depression seems to yield in a very substantive number of cases to psychedelics. Um, Obviously, you gave us a little bit of a forerunner there with DMT and the possible um, key to the lock of the receptors in our brain. Yeah. But what what is coming out of that research? Where do we think that goes? Why does it seem to work? And how often does it work? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, I was at the Psychedelic Science um, Conference in Denver a couple of weeks ago. I was at the 2013 one. Um really tell anybody I was going to the 2013 one, but I was able to tell everybody I went to the 2023 one. And so things have changed quite a bit in the last mm-hmm. decade around this topic. Um, and, you know, a lot more data, right? We we know a lot more about what, what these things can do. MDMA seems to be a very profound, um, you know, anti-trauma sort of um, substance, um, PTSD, that sort of thing. Um, there's been one positive trial that was in Nature Medicine a couple of I guess a year or two back. Uh, one of my best friends, who's um, in my wedding, was um, you know one of the investigators on that paper, and um, they did a great job on that work. There's another there's another positive study that's going to come out soon, and people expect um, FDA to weigh in on this um, soon. And they actually released guidance for doing studies and psychedelics um, during the, the last day of the conference, ironically. Psilocybin has been studied, to your point, in both major depression that's not necessarily treatment-resistant and in individuals with true-to-form treatment-resistant depression. The um, major depression data, Robin Carhart-Harris had some of that, went into New England Journal. There's another um, paper that is going to arise from um, Chuck Rezon and that group, um, and uh, he's he's holding that data close to his chest, so we we get the sense that it's good, but but haven't seen it. Um, and that's in more non-treatment resistant major depression, where you see higher, you know, response remission rates. And the Compass um, the Compass trial that was the treatment resistant trial, um, the data was good. It it was um, you know it wasn't as profound as what we were able to see with the less treatment resistant folks but you know about a third of people um had benefit from it that was clinically relevant um and what dose were they giving people like is this a full-blown hallucination or it was all the, the benefit really was only observed in like the full full dose right like the what the 25 milligram dose which is 25 milligrams of pure psilocybin the active ingredient and magic mushrooms. When you think about, or psilocybin mushrooms, or however you want to talk about it, if you think about actually 
you know, ingesting the mushrooms themselves, you're talking about grams of mushrooms, mm. you know, there's a certain conversion factor of grams of mushrooms to actual psilocybin. The problem, you know, with the grams of mushroom thing is that the, depending upon if you're getting mushrooms from this place or that place or this person or that person or whatever it is, the mushrooms end up being different concentrations of psilocybin compared to like, you know how much, which is why I'm, you know, I'm pretty supportive of the kind of medicalization of this because especially for treating diagnoses, mm. I think it's important if you've got somebody that's, to your point, suicidally depressed, I want to, if I'm going to give them something that has psilocybin and I want to know actually how much psilocybin they really are getting because the 10 milligram group, which is still not a trivial, that's over a microdose that, you know, that's, you're feeling that didn't experience the same clinical benefit as the 25 milligram group, which is mm. pretty heavy. Are we at heroic dose at that point? Uh, you know, I, I, I will, I, I don't use that term medically, but that is what the, that is what others would call a heroic dose at Got 25. It. 10 would be um, a, a dose that you're having, you know, a, a psychoactive drug effect. One, which was another dose in that study is essentially a microdose. So there was nothing there. Not that much for the 10 clinically relevant effect and about a third of people for the 25, suggesting that you have to have this full experience. Um, you know, I, you know, I have, I, I don't have like a, I'm agnostic to all these, these are all tools. I think they're all going to be used for different things. Um, going to skipping neuromod, you know, especially the stuff that we've been doing with accelerated TMS skipping that and going on to psilocybin is tricky. And um, and I always kind of bring people through STEM first because the risk-benefit profile and the like prep, to, it's, it's functionally just boring, right? The, the prep to get somebody on board to do that and to for them to be psychologically ready to do that is so low. I mean, I tell people if, if, if your doctor thinks that your treatment is boring and you think your treatment is boring, that's great because that boring from the standpoint of what's going on, not the outcome, mm. because that means that it's low risk, right? And, and you know, TMS and, and what we call SAINT, this accelerated stimulation approach, these are incredibly high risk benefit profile sorts of things where there's a theoretical risk of seizure. We've never actually even seen it with a stimulation approach. Um, that's it. Headache in some people that's Tylenol responsive um, and the benefit can be huge. The problem with psilocybin isn't the people that got better. You know, there are people that got better, they got better and it was good. If you look at the adverse event list in that study, that New England Journal study, there was a decently high risk of emergence of more suicidal ideation or mm. suicidal ideation, particularly in the individuals that didn't get better. And it's not necessarily from the drug. It's from this phenomenon of disappointment and hopelessness. Interesting. Right. So this thing that's supposed to be like the thing didn't work for me. And now I'm really despondent. Yeah. And you, and that's not even specific to psilocybin. I'm not arguing that psilocybin caused that. I'm arguing that there's just a general risk in those sort of scenarios where you see that sometimes we see that with, People that go through brain surgery for depression, they're like really, really worst of the worst. They'll, there's experimental brain surgery sorts of moves where you can put stimulators into the head. People that don't respond to that have a suicide risk. We've seen that. Um, 
And then, you know, folks who the, you know, on the S ketamine product kind of FDA product description post study, there were a number of suicides once people were pulled off of S ketamine, hmm. which is really interesting to get back to the kind of, the once you get way. pulled off. So not while you're on it, but if you stop, is that a withdrawal thing or just the depression comes racing back? Um, you know, certain certain individuals would not love it if i said that but i i think that you know that's an open question right um you know because it's during the during the period after um after it comes off board but i think it's this overall question of like you know kind of mitigating risk you know we 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 see this less with neurostimulation or, or, or you know not much at all with a, with a non-invasive neurostimulation bit and I think it's because people don't have to prep themselves to do it. It doesn't feel like such a risk. It doesn't feel like such a, you know, to take a psilocybin trip as a depressed individual that's never done it before, which is really who they're looking for, 50-year-old, 60-year-old person. They've gone through their whole life and avoided this, and now they're taking this, and they may have even had a bad experience with it, and then they're still depressed. That's not a, you know, it's a tough thing. But how do you How do you prepare yourself for it? Uh, psychologists will try to, you know, we'll, we'll do some work to prep folks for, for psychotherapy or just explanation of what the trip is going to be like and how yeah. to handle it if it gets scary. Yeah. I mean, in some ways that's therapy too, right? In the sense that you're, you know, supportive psychotherapy or however you want to think about it. But yeah, I mean, psychoeducation, that sort of thing. You're trying to get the person to be ready to when they go into this mental space and then they end up, um, you know, feeling uh, quite a bit different and in some ways kind of out of control, right? And then the kind of control comes back online mm. when the trip is over, you know what I mean? And so that's, that's I think, and then, you know, processing insights, you know, psychedelics produce a lot of insights, you know, so processing insights, processing, you know, um, the positive and the negative, you know, and for some people, with all those disclaimers, for some people, this is incredibly transformative, right? They come out of these experiences and they feel like they're a different person, you know, from like a, how, how I'm approaching, you know, my significant other, my friends, you know, they, they get out of the, maybe the mental health crisis or their depression or whatever it is. But, you know, we know that there's even lasting personality changes that happen. You know, if you give psilocybin to normal, healthy control individuals, they'll routinely rate it as one of the top five most important, like a full-blown trip, one of the top five most important um, experiences in their lives up there with their wedding and their kids being born, you know? And that's that's saying something, right? That's pretty hard to pull off mm. a lot of people and in into life where they're able to process their imminent death, you know? So the tools are, these tools are a little trickier than I think the STEM tools are. They have the ability to produce broader effects because you're. It's not just about affecting the illness. Now you're affecting an entire like perceptual, to your point, kind of perception of how the world works. You know what we've been working on is um, is a psychedelic that's a less known psychedelic called ibogaine. Its issue has been historically that's. Um, has quite a bit of cardiac risk, you know, and so um, kind of one in 300, you know, serious Whoa. cardiac risk, right? Um, that Those numbers come from 
individuals that have received ibogaine for the purpose of detox from usually end-stage heroin addiction mm. so it's people who've probably had a heart infection before and all that sort of thing um so i got connected with a, a group back in 2018 um you know vets which is amber and marcus capone uh, veterans um exploring treatment solutions for in this case tbi ptsd and depression and so the so marcus actually went down to mexico after a buddy went down to mexico and took ibogaine and his ptsd and traumatic brain injury symptoms got better and marcus whoa whoa whoa, whoa. his traumatic brain injury symptoms got better mm -hmm. what does that tell us well in addition to being a brain-derived neurotrophic factor upregulator, IBN is a glial-derived neurotrophic factor upregulator. What does that mean? It has, you know, that one has a role in regulating dopamine, neuron health, and, and other things. So it's a broader kind of neurotrophic factor um, upregulator than just what we see with psychedelics and what we see with SSRIs. It's okay, so unique to IBN. If there are at least two, apparently, um, growth factors that you can have in the brain are there only two are there a whole bunch more like the, what is the, that those are like? the main ones that people think about as far as like regulating the kind of standard you know serotonin receptor you know serotonin neuron dopamine neuron um and in glial derived neurotrophic factor in particular you know that's been a harder one to move bdnf moves with a lot of different things and so um you know if you take a mouse and you give you get the mouse addicted to cocaine and you give it ibogaine and it'll stop being addicted to cocaine. Hmm. If you give um, direct injections of GDNF into um, dopamine neurons, you have the same outcome. It's really interesting, right? So that one, that, you know, kind of effect of ibogaine may be unique. So yeah, so we've been running this trial. It'll come out and press in um, six, eight weeks from now. Um, it's looking like and human trials with ibogaine. Mm -hmm. Yep. Tell me more. Yeah. Yeah. So we partnered. So it's, it has been very difficult to do this in the U S historically because of the cardiac risk. Mm. So we, we kind of, um, constructed this study where Stanford IRB agreed to this study, which is amazing of them where we actually evaluated people at Stanford, sent them down to Mexico. So they were, kind of already headed to Mexico, signed up to do this through vets. Then they came to see us and they went down to Mexico, received the Ibogaine, came back, reevaluated them, evaluated them in a month. So we did the first neuroimaging study of Ibogaine um, effects, um, first EG study of Ibogaine effects, blood, full neurocognitive batteries. Um, and, and it's an interesting phenomenon. There have been about a thousand Navy SEALs and Army Rangers and Special Forces guys that have gone down and taken this African root bark extract drug. That's Ibogaine. That's Ibogaine, yeah. Got it. Ibogaine is um, extracted from the iboga tree that's um, native to Gabon and surrounding um, you know, African countries. And um, the the Gabonese um, group that that is kind of used this um, as a sacrament is the Buiti. And um, they've been using this for millennia. And so, um, yeah, it was kind of long story that led up to it. Um, there's a movie that, a documentary that I was in, premiered at, at Tribeca um, about a month ago um, called of, of Light and Night, um, Lucy Walker. 
um, described, you know, kind of went through and described this history of the last kind of 50 to 60 years of trying to get, get this studied in the U S. Um, but yeah, we, you know, there, it's been, there's been a difficulty in, um, in studying it in the U S and so we partnered to do it. Those results are kind of pending and I can talk about that at a later date. Um, there's been a lot of interest, um, you know, kind of in the addiction treatment community in, in Kentucky, Kentucky, interestingly ended up being the first state to, to have a lot of interest in this and they have money from some of the opiate lawsuits and, and settlement money for, for a lot of the, you know, the, um, the opiate oxycodone, you know, cotton codone mm. problems. And they, and so they have, um, you know, I think like $800 million and they're trying, whoa. And so they're trying to, they, they're trying to earmark like, um, 42 million or so um, towards Ibogaine um, research. And so they um, proposed to do this. Um, so I was, I was actually testifying in Kentucky um, earlier this week uh, in front of a, the opiate commission about this. And, wow. so, and so they, um, one guy in particular, Brian Hubbard in that, in the um, attorney general's office, you know, put this up as like an idea for dealing with Kentucky's opiate mm. um, crisis. And, and what did they want to know? Is it effective in helping people get uh, unaddicted? Yeah. And that's what it's actually been known, like what it's been more established to do. And so that, you know, this exploration of the veterans is a new application and we, mm. you know, we've explored kind of those effects. We've known for some time that it's a profound addiction interrupter, that mouse study I was talking about earlier, like for, you know, 30 years we've had case reports, but it's been very hard to study it in the U S because of the regulatory concerns around the heart and because of, you know, concerns of studying psychedelics historically. So we're probably at a moment now where that's shifting, but, um, but yeah, you know, uh, I think Hunter Biden in his documentary, um, took Ibogaine and then describes it. Um, there've been a number of other celebrities and, and folks like that, that, um, have taken ibogaine in very kind of variable levels of optics kind of societal you know at a societal level of mm. you know knowing this but they're clinics that operate in countries where this is legal including it's legal in australia and new zealand but you know countries where this is legal where people will go and receive ibogaine treatment for you know, hard to treat addiction and so and the numbers are really really good for addiction interruption so it's just been this issue of how do you how do you deal with the heart problem? You know, we've we've taken this kind of stance of co-administration of cardiac risk reduction drugs so you can kind of prophylax against potential heart mm. problems before even Ibogaine's on board. And then, you know, concurrently with the Ibogaine, with the idea that you could, you know, uh, risk reduce. And, you know, we didn't observe any symptomatic cardiac problems during our trial, which was great. But yeah, it's... It's it's interesting, you know, this is we're at this precipice of really looking at these really interesting substances and ones that are really really te I would say technologically advanced compared to the drugs that man has made 